0: Good morning, if you would, let's grab a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. Good to see you this morning. I felt like uh, talking from down here, I hope that's okay, and I appreciate uh, the singing and I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you, appreciate the fact that we have a number of visitors with us. I do want to say, what we're going to talk about this morning Uh, It may not be as interesting to you if you're a visitor. You know, there are some times when in our assemblies and our studies, we focus on things that are really about our group here, and uh, that's not to the exclusion of our visitors, but we want you to know. I know that this may sound like a little bit of, uh, I don't know, insider-type talk. I don't mean anything by that, but I want you to know I acknowledge that, and uh, that's just a function of the fact that we have work that we do together and uh, we have some things that from time to time we need to discuss about that work. So we're thankful that you're here. Uh, if you are confused or you have questions about things that I say, I'd love to talk to you more about them. Uh, but uh, just wanted to give that caveat as we begin. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, the text reads, Acts four thirty-two. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were the owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So from the very beginning of the church, it's obvious that serving Jesus for these young disciples newly baptized, working together in the Jerusalem church. From the very beginning, it was clear that serving Jesus was going to involve their money. And what that meant for them practically was that they were willing to give and share and pool their money together, particularly here to help their brothers and sisters who were in need. So I want to talk this morning about churches and money. And I don't want to talk about churches and money because we are short of funds, and we want more of your money or we've got some kind of problem with our money, I want to talk about it because from time to time it is important for us to kind of move back to where we talk about simply the things that we do. We have taken a collection this morning and someone might want to know, well, what do you do with that money? It's very common in our day for organizations to be questioned about, what do you do with our money? For taxpayers to want to know what the government does with their money for investors to know, what is the company doing with my money? And so it is, even in congregations, that people want to know, well, I'm contributing, what goes on with that money? And in particular, there is a question that has been raised to me a couple of times that came from a workbook that we have been studying, and a couple of times people were confused by the statement in the workbook that I felt was a little bit strongly worded, uh, and yet this question came, and so I thought it would be good for us if there's some confusion about the topic, to just discuss it publicly and uh, try to answer the questions. And if you have more questions, I'm happy to answer them. But the basic gist is uh, that this congregation does not support institutions. And so I wanted to talk for a few minutes about that. Why don't we support institutions in this congregation? Now, when I talk about institutions this morning, that's a term that needs some definition. So that are things like um, organizations, like a missionary society, or an orphan's home, or a college, or a charity that is sort of distinct from the church. So here we are, the local church, and these are other organizations that have been formed to do sort of parallel work to some of the things that we do as a church. And when I say support, I mean the idea is that we don't take money we collect from the treasury and send it to those organizations. And some wonder why that is. What's the belief behind that? What's the problem with that? And so... As I'll explain in a minute, I don't mean that Christians individually, you or I, don't have the ability or the right to support institutions. I'm explaining why we as a congregation don't do that. With money from the treasury. So I want to give you three reasons. And I want to warn you the first reason we're going to do a lot of digging in the in the scripture. And so I'm going to need your attention and you to turn with me and look at these passages for a few minutes. The latter two are a little more about the reasoning behind some of these things uh, that I thought would be explanatory. So I want to warn you, we're front-loaded here with lots of scripture in the beginning. So go with me. I'm aware of that. I want you to be aware of that. And we'll do some work here for a few minutes and get to the bottom of this question. So the first reason we don't don't support institutions is because it's not how New Testament churches did their work. So if you study about how New Testament churches used money, there are two main uses, really two only two things that we find that New Testament churches do with the money that they collect. One of those is here in Acts 4, it's the idea of helping other Christians who are in need. So you see that here in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So you have a kind of in the very beginning, you still have the apostles here, there's a collection, we're going to save up money, we give it to the apostles, and the apostles give it to others who are needy within the church. So that's money collected just like what we're trying to do, and then that collection is then used. ...to help needy Christians. Turn a page over to Acts 6. In Acts 6, it seems to have gotten a little more formal... ...by the time you get to Acts 6... ...because there seems to be more of an organization... ...because of the terms that are used here. Acts 6 and verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... ...a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews... ...because their widows were being neglected... ...in the daily distribution. So the daily distribution is the idea when I say it's more formal. There seems to be a daily gift given to needy widows... In the church. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So when there is a problem, a complaint, that's sort of racially based, by the way, When there is a problem, the apostles say, we need to fix this problem. But they realize we're overloaded. Remember that the church in Jerusalem has about 5,000 people at this stage. We're focused on preaching the word. We can't do that and tend to the daily distribution. So let's get some guys who we can put over this task and we can focus our attention on the ministry of the word. And so they do. And this is another example. of we've got money that's been collected, how are we using it? We're using it to help needy Christians within the group. Uh, turn over to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, you also have opportunities that arise where there are needy Christians in other places. And you see here that sometimes collections are made and money is sent to those other places. Acts 11, this is verse 27. Acts 11 and verse 27, it says... Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So you have here some some really important technical information. Verse 29, the disciples determined... Everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So they decided, I have money, there's going to be a famine, the the people in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem are in need, let's help them. And so they decide, let's send money to them. How do they send it? They send it by Barnabas and Saul, who go down to Jerusalem, and they give the money to the elders in the church in Jerusalem. Now, we don't read this, but I'm just presuming that the elders in the church in Jerusalem then gave it to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. That's the idea, though. The idea is churches collect money, they see there's a need, somebody's in need, we're going to either send the money to them or we're going to send the money to the elders where they are and they will distribute it to them. So most of the New Testament passages that talk about churches raising money or helping needy Christians or sending money in any way has to do with this use, where somebody's in need. In fact, there are a lot of passages, Uh, Lance read one this morning at the the table during the collection, that that talk about how Paul was raising money in the churches to help these needy Christians in Jerusalem, because Paul was going to take a a big contribution down to the church in Jerusalem, because they seem to have a lot of needy Christians. He alludes to that in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he alludes to it in Romans, he alludes to it in Galatians. Uh, But in every case, the money is raised by a local church, and it is sent directly to where the need is. If there's a need, we we hand the person the money who is in need or we send it to the elders where they are who can hand it to them, the people who are in need. So that's the first thing that churches do with money. They did their work by helping needy Christians. The other thing you see in the New Testament that has to do with money is that churches will collect money and then send it to someone who is preaching. Specifically, it's always Paul in the New Testament. All right, so that is found. Let's look in Philippians chapter 4. And it's found in a few places, and it's alluded to. I don't know that this is a particularly controversial idea, but as we're talking about what churches do with their money, it seems to me to be relevant, and for us to read through some of the passages that that touch on it. Philippians 4 and verse 14. Philippians, by the way, can easily be read as a thank you note from Paul to the Philippian church because they have sent him support. Philippians 4 and verse 14, he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, So Paul reminds them that there was a time when no church shared with him. That's in verse 15. That in the beginning when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. That's my version. The idea is there was no church that was helping me. No church was sending me money. And so he is reminiscing and he said, but you did. You guys helped me and time and again you sent to my needs, verse 16. So he is saying, this is something that I'm thankful for because When you send money, it's not the money. Did you notice he says, I'm not seeking the money. In fact, he has just said, I'm I'm content in whatever state I'm in. He says, what I care about is the fact that when you send me money, it means you're thinking about me, you care about me, you're trying to help me. There's a connection there. When we help someone preaching the gospel, we share in their work. And we show that we have fellowship, not only in their work, but that we approve of them and want them to succeed. There is an expectation then in the New Testament that when anyone is preaching the gospel, specifically when someone is preaching the gospel and we benefit from it, that we have an obligation to support them. I want to show you this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 7. It says, 2 Corinthians eleven seven, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. I want to focus your attention on verse 8 there. He says... I robbed other churches. Now, that is not literal. Paul did not rob churches. But what is he saying? He says in verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. I I wasn't taking your money. I was taking their money while I was working with you. And so he said, that's not right. That's kind of like robbing them when you are the ones who should be supporting me because I'm serving you. There should be a, a commonality, a sharing in those things. They should have supported him. Turn over to First Corinthians chapter nine. 1 Corinthians nine. Paul here, we're not going to read all of this, but Paul gives an extended defense of his right to receive pay for preaching. In First Corinthians nine, and I, I want to read just a few of these verses uh, in verse four. 1 Corinthians nine and verse four. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I think you can hear in Paul's comparisons what he is saying. He is saying, as I work with you, it's not somehow grossly inappropriate for me to have what I need and you to share with me in that. Verse 14, he says, in the same way the Lord commanded, that's Jesus, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So we could talk a lot about this text. There's a lot here. But at the bottom line, Paul is saying, it's right for those who preach to receive pay for preaching and it's right for us who benefit from their preaching to share good things with them there are some implications of what we have just studied. That is, if we have these two uses, one about needy Christians and one about supporting preaching, well, where did the churches that sent this money, where did they get it? How did they collect it? That's a very difficult question to answer from the New Testament information. I think we have to presume that it is a free will offering like in Acts chapter 4, where they laid it at the apostles' feet and a free will offering that may have been collected every first day of the week, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. But we don't have specific information about that. What we know is that churches had money, and churches used that money in those ways. But I want to stress one thing. There is a logic to how churches use their money in the New Testament era. Look in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 11. It says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So if these things really matter and we're sharing things that are spiritual, then it's, it's appropriate to reap things that are physical. Can't we share? Paul says, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. That's in Galatians chapter six. So that means... A preacher who works with us is not out of line to expect his brethren to support him. But I also want you to realize this logic also applies to needy Christians. Look with me in Romans 15. Paul thinks exactly the same way about church money in Romans 15. I appreciate you. I told you. I tried to warn you. We're doing a lot of uh, Bible turning here in the first part. I appreciate you turning along with me. Romans 15 and verse 26. Romans 15, 26, Paul writes, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So you see the same logic. Just like he said in 1 Corinthians 9, If we share in in spiritual things, should we not reap material things? And the same here. If we share in spiritual things, should we not reap in material things? That is what the word fellowship means. We share. So we share things that are spiritual, but because we share spiritual things, we share our physical things as well. So when I say it's not how New Testament churches did their work, this is what I mean. New Testament Christians helped needy Christians and they sent money to preachers and they sent that money directly to the need. They did not use intermediaries or institutions or organizations. So they sent the money to needy Christians or to the elders where those needy Christians were. They sent money to preachers evidently by sending it directly to Paul, usually by the hand of a messenger. So does that mean that institutions are bad? No, it doesn't mean that. It does not mean that institutions are inherently corrupt. It just means that it is possible to do the work God assigns the church without them. The way I know that is that's what they did in the New Testament. There was no need for those things. And so to say that we need those things today to do that work is to say that they were not complete in the New Testament era. And that is a premise that I reject. Now, we have a lot more questions about how New Testament churches did their work and what that's going to mean for us about churches and money today. And we could talk about a lot of those things, but I just want to lay down, here are the uses we see in the New Testament. We have committed ourselves to following the New Testament. So if we say that that's not how New Testament churches did their work, then that means that shouldn't be how we do our work. And that is one reason why we don't support institutions. Second, We don't support institutions because we have some concerns about autonomy. Now, it may be that autonomy is a new word for you, and that's okay. Autonomy is the idea of a congregation being self governing, it takes care of its own business, and it rules itself under the leadership of Christ. So, each congregation, if it's autonomous, is completely independent of all other earthly bodies. And that is the idea that institutions can be a threat to. Let's look in Acts chapter 14. I want to show you the idea that New Testament churches were autonomous and explain where we get that idea. Acts 14, verse 21, Acts 14, 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with fasting and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the focus there is in verse 23, that as Paul and Barnabas go back through these congregations that had just formed, it says they appointed elders for them in every church. Elders in every church. Now these churches are all in the same general region. And it would have been acceptable, at least geographically possible, to say, let's just have a few elders over the whole region. I mean, and and for some that makes sense. You know, let's just have elders that are over this area. In fact, you know, a a lot of denominations do that today where they have a general diocese or a certain council over a certain area. But that's not the way that the New Testament records Paul and Barnabas doing it. Instead, each church had its own elders. And that comports well with uh, what we see in Titus chapter 1, where Paul gives instruction to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So each, in this case, he talks about towns rather than individual congregations, but in each place, there need to be elders, not just one elder over the whole region, but each church having its own leadership. Turn the page over to Acts chapter 20, Acts 20, It's also clear that each group is to have oversight over just that group. And you see that in Acts 20. Paul is is speaking here to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20 and verse 28. He says, "...pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood." I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. So he says specifically in verse 28, The church of God, I'm sorry, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Or yours might say, over which. What he is saying is, the Elders of the church at Ephesus are elders over the church at Ephesus. Okay, this is not that hard. They are over that church. And he says, you shepherd that church. And you watch out to guard that church. Because there are wolves coming in among the flock in that church. What's your responsibility? What are the limits of it? What is it about? It is about guarding and watching over that church. The church at Ephesus. Peter says something similar, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, we're studying 1 Peter on Wednesday nights. Those who are in there know that that 1 Peter is written to a wide range, a a broad geographical area, really big, most of what is modern-day Turkey. And yet, as these different people were to read this, the elders are to know they are to shepherd the flock that is among them. Not everybody but the flock that is among them. Now there's some wisdom in that and it makes some sense when you start to think about it. Elders really can only know well the group of people that are there with them in their geographical area. They can only protect spiritually the people who are there with them. They can only be accountable for the people that are there and they can only guard against dangers and concerns that are present there. But, This word, autonomy, becomes important to us then. This is the reason why this congregation, Fairview Park, is completely independent of every other congregation. This is why, because we read those passages and we say, okay, that's the way New Testament churches organize themselves. That's the way we need to be organized. So does that mean that we don't have anything to do with other churches? No, it doesn't mean that. No, of course not. They're our brothers and sisters. They're doing the work that we're doing. They have the same struggles we do. We connect and encourage them. Sometimes we're disheartened when we hear about problems that are happening in other places. Sometimes we're encouraged when we hear about great work and and the gospel spreading through the efforts of other Christians. Sometimes we have opportunities in one form or another to support them. But at the end of the day, when all of that is said, we submit to our elders who have authority only over this flock. Now, what does that have to do with institutions? Okay, you might be asking, I know we're... We're covering a lot of ground here. Well, I said we have concerns about autonomy. We have concerns about the impact that the practice of supporting institutions from a church treasury has on autonomy. For example, if you band a group of churches together and you say, let's get all our money and pool it together and we'll work together to do some great work suddenly we no longer have autonomy and the ability to govern ourselves and make decisions for what we are going to do with them sometimes an institution like a missionary society will pool funds together and then send them out to a preacher and that raises some questions if we use our money that we have collected and we send it to them where is our money going who is getting it what do they teach and believe who makes those decisions And what has happened is in that intermediary step, we have lost the connection to fellowship that is so simple and so clear in the New Testament. We love Paul. We know what Paul is preaching. Let's send to Paul so that Paul has what he needs. Instead, it becomes let's send to this organization. Whoever they decide, I guess that'll be fine. And who is making those decisions? Is it a board? A board of regents? Is it another eldership somewhere else? Is it a conference? Who are these people? Are they Christians? Do we trust their judgment? See, we don't know. When we send the money to them, suddenly we lose that sense that we are accountable for what is done with that. Suddenly someone else is making decisions for what is best and what is right about what we have an obligation to God to answer for and what we've collected. I want to remind you, remember when we studied Acts 6 a minute ago? And there was a problem in the daily distribution. What happened? We knew exactly what needed to happen, didn't we? The apostles said, we need to take care of this. This is our responsibility and our problem. What happened in Acts 11? When the Antioch church sent money to the Jerusalem church, who who should be in charge of that? They knew exactly who should be in charge. We're going to send that to the elders and they can make the determination about that. What I want you to see is that when we offer up our money to institutions, suddenly it raises a lot of questions that are avoided when we just do things the way New Testament churches did them. And we say we don't have to wonder who's doing what with what we've collected. I started in the beginning by saying, you know, it's very common in our time for people to wonder, what's happening with my money? As a taxpayer, what's happening with my money? Here we're saying to send it to an institution is to say, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. You need to go talk to them. And it seems to me that that is a far cry from what you actually see in the New Testament. The third reason we don't support institutions is that we want to pursue unity. I want you to go with me to Ephesians 4 for a moment. Ephesians 4. I suspect that you may not have thought about this from the broader perspective of unity in a local church. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the, hope, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul talks about our obligation to maintain The unity of the spirit. That is in verse 3. That this is something we have to work at. And that there are difficult decisions that are made. It's going to involve humility and gentleness. And bearing with one another. As we try to pursue unity. There are some things about unity that are just non-negotiable. And Paul gives a list there, verses 4 to 6. Things that, that we can't bend on, we can't compromise on. It's not about humility. It's not about gentleness. It's just about these are the facts of the gospel. That will unite us. But there are other things that are matters of opinion or preference or conviction that may not be as essential. I don't know if you've thought about this. I have. I know our elders have. This congregation is a very interesting blend. We have people here who have long attended churches that do not support institutions. And then we have people here who have long attended churches that have supported institutions. And then we have some people here who have no idea what I'm talking about probably wondering when I'm going to finish there are some people here who just don't care and there are some people who are new to this whole discussion they've not even thought about it there are some who believe that supporting institutions is wrong there are others who believe that it is just unwise and there are others here who believe it's just fine so here we are we're all here together how do we pursue unity when those things are true? If we were to propose, let's support such and such an institution, what would happen? It certainly would not be unity, would it? Based, just solely based on the idea of backgrounds and opinions, there would not be unity. And even if even if you were to eliminate everything we said in the first two points. If we were just to say, hey guys, what do we think about supporting this and supporting this? We'd still have to make some judgments, wouldn't we? Our elders would still have to make some judgments. And those judgments, I am certain, would not please everybody. So what do you do when you have a problem like that? How do you pursue unity? Well, it seems to me, and I believe to the elders as well, that the wisest way to handle that is to say, we have made decisions about what we're going to do with the collective money, what we gather and put in our treasury. And they're going to decide that we're not going to support institutions. We're going to be there to help needy Christians. We're going to send that money to people who are preaching the gospel. However, if you have a cause that you believe in, by all means, you support that cause. And you do what you think you should with that cause. But just know, they might not be a cause that everyone in the congregation agrees with and would go along with in terms of church money. I just uh, made a little sketch here. These are just the things that I know about some of us here. We have several people who believe very strongly in adoption causes and the organizations that help with adoptions. That's awesome. There are people here who have certain children's homes or orphan's homes that they love to support. That's awesome. Some of you have uh, charities and hospitals that are dear to your heart. Some of you, I know, support preachers yourselves. You write the check to the guy. That's awesome. Those are just the things that I know about. Nothing I am saying is to be construed as to say, you should not support institutions that you believe in and agree with. It's just to say that in the interest of unity, that's not something that everyone can get on board with as a church treasury issue. But can I say this? I would urge every one of us to let the collection plate not be the end of your giving, but the beginning. What we do when we gather these funds together is about our mission and our work, but there's a lot more good to be done. There is so much... That we can do and accomplish. That may not be directly related. To the work of this congregation. But is still a good thing. And we might not agree on all of those things. As a group. But that's okay. Don't let that stop you. We want to encourage us all. To do good in the ways that we can. While still pursuing unity. Another question that often comes up. In this discussion. And it has come up. As I have discussed it with others. Is how do we view people who do believe in and practice these things. I know that there were a lot of hard feelings when a lot of these issues first came up. I don't know if some of you were alive and lived through those things in the 50s and the 60s. I believe it is important to say, this is my belief, that we are brothers and sisters with other people who are believers in Jesus, baptized into Christ and trying to follow him that we are brothers and sisters. That does not mean that I agree with everything that my brothers and sisters do. But it does mean that I acknowledge them and I am not their judge. It seems to me that we need to say, this is something that others may disagree with and they will answer to the Lord just as I will. But I am not their judge. I am not angry. I want to pursue unity. And I believe that the clearest course for unity is for us to say, let's do the things that we can all agree on. And those other things, let's do on an individual basis in a way that we all can. But I'll say this. Most of all, most of all, I don't want this church to be characterized by what we don't do. I want this church to be a group that is known for following Jesus and living our faith and sharing the gospel, and being joyful. I want this group to be known for being disciples of Jesus, not for being the people who don't do a bunch of other things. Can we do that and pursue that and let that be what unifies us instead of things that we might be against? I don't believe that these things have to be a division mark for us. I believe that we can pursue unity. And if you have more questions about that, as I'm sure you do, you're welcome to talk to me. I would also encourage you to talk to the elders about their philosophy and their thinking about what they do with our money. But one of my fears in this discussion, and one of the reasons I hesitate to preach on it because it seems to me that we we may miss the point if all we're talking about is the negative. God wants His people to be givers. He wants us to be thoughtful and doing good and sharing. God wants his people to love each other. God wants his people to love the lost. And that might involve some money stuff. But there is a lot there that is beyond money and beyond what we spend. It's especially a disposition, an attitude, a heart. And I pray that this church will be an example of what God wants and not just a product of divisions. Would you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the time that you've granted us to spend together this morning. Father, I pray that you've been pleased and honored by the things that we've done and said by the worship we've offered to you. Father, I pray for this group as we try to wrestle with questions like these that can be so divisive and hostile That are difficult. Help us, Father, to pursue them with humility and with love and a desire to get along. Help us, Father, to be willing to show respect for the conscience of one another. Help us, Father, to be characterized by love and giving and kindness. I pray, Father, that you'll give us wisdom to make good decisions about these things. I pray especially for our elders as they guide us and help us to work together. I pray, Father, that this group will grow stronger and more unified and closer together. Father, I pray that you'll give us wisdom as we pursue that goal. Give us a heart to follow you, that we can be an example to those around us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. I appreciate you following along. And again, to those who are visiting with us, thank you for your patience as we dealt with some things that really are focused on what we're doing here. But this is the time that we have set aside as an invitation to invite those who need to make a change in their lives or are ready to obey the gospel for the first time. If you are ready to make that change, there's something that we can do to help you. Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.